All right. Um, but anyway, he sent me the list of books that were still available, and the pickings are getting slim. Uh, somebody left Ezekiel there, so I grabbed it. And uh, if he'd asked me much later, I don't know which one I would have taken. But I'm, I like the book of Ezekiel. It's a book, actually, that not many know a lot about. And so you might not be able to fact-check me tonight on the, on the lesson. So uh, whether that's good, I don't know. But if you're familiar with the book of Exodus and the book of Revelation, you can pretty much cover the book of Ezekiel because they have a lot in common. And uh, a lot of what we're going to be looking at uh, we're going to kind of do a quick synopsis of, of chapter 1 and 8 through 11 uh, to, uh, to discuss some things that happened there. By way of background, the prophet Jeremiah, in the days of Judah, after the northern kingdom had been taken uh, captive by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom was left, Jeremiah was prophesying in the 7th century to God's people that were left there, and he kept telling them, because God wanted him to, that the Babylonians were going to come. The Babylonians were coming. The the people did not like that news. They did not want to hear, and so they didn't believe him, and uh, they had him arrested. They put him in a a well in the ground. They did all kinds of things. Other prophets arose, really false prophets, to say he doesn't know what he's talking about because that's what the people wanted to hear, but he kept telling them God's word. The Babylonians are coming. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And all of that is in the first chapter of Jeremiah. If you go over to the seventh chapter, you'll read what is usually referred to as the t- temple sermon, where he there in that temple was telling them uh, the same things, and they kept saying, oh, no, this is God's temple, this is God's house, he'll never destroy it. But he kept insisting that it was coming. And, of course, the Babylonians did come. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament history, you realize that the children of, uh, of Judah were taken into Babylonian captivity in three stages. Uh, the first time was in uh, 606 B.C. That was the time when Daniel and his friends went off into captivity. And then the second time was in 597. Uh, that's when Ezekiel went off into captivity. And so the third time is 586, and that's when Jerusalem and the whole, the whole place is going to be destroyed. But that hasn't happened yet. When the book of Ezekiel begins, his ministry begins between that second and third deportation. So a lot of them are already there. He is ministering as God's prophet to them in Babylon. And uh, these people are, uh, they know that there's still something going on. The nation is still back there. But in chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now it came to pass in the 30th year, The fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kibar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And that's what I want to talk about, some of these early visions here in the book. Uh, I studied and tried to find out what the significance of this 30th year is. And the best that I could find is that he's probably talking about the 30th year of his life. He is now 30 years old. If you go on down here, you'll read that verse 3, the word of the Lord came to expressly to Ezekiel the priest. Ezekiel was of the tribe of Levi. He was uh, one who would have been a priest had he remained in Jerusalem where that temple was. And so this 30th year is probably his 30th year of life. And that is significant because in uh, Numbers chapter 4 verse 3, that's the age at which a priest began serving from the year from his 30th year through his 50th year they served as priests but alas 
Ezekiel will not get to do that. He is off in captivity and now has to prophesy about the destruction of the temple and, uh, and the city, in fact, as well. And so he will never get to serve as priest. And so God chooses him to be a prophet instead. And the news, as I said, that he has that's hardest to take for the children of Israel, uh, or Judah more specifically, the Bible does refer to them as Israel several times in this passage, but is that in about six years, the Babylonians will go back and they will destroy our homeland. Our city, its walls, the temple, the house of our God will all be destroyed. They don't like that news. They don't want to hear that news. But that's what he is called upon to tell them. And it will be his job now to report to them and tell them why this is going to happen. And also to try to lift their spirits, even though that is about to happen. In the first chapter, and I'm just going to summarize these visions, and then we'll get to more specific things in just a little bit. In the first chapter, you'll read in verse 4 about the whirlwind that he sees coming out of the north. And he sees creatures, living creatures. Uh, The New King James reads, and that's what it refers to them most of the time. But these are what we would call cherubs, or cherubim, if you prefer that older word. Uh, but they are being described for us in the first uh, uh, in 11 verses there from 4 to 14. After that, he begins talking about wheels. And you remember that phrase probably, the wheel in the middle of the wheel. And an old spiritual you know, song about that I remember learning one time. Uh, I remember my first experience with the book of Ezekiel was when I was on the track team at my high school. And we were on the bus in the middle of the day, waiting for the time for our events. And and there was a boy in the back, and I was listening to him, and he was uh, expounding upon the flying saucers that are found in the Bible. Have you ever heard about the flying saucers? He's talking about Ezekiel chapter 1. And these wheels that he keeps talking about here, he thought those were flying saucers, and these creatures, these living creatures, and the fantastic descriptions of them, he thought they were aliens that came off of these saucers, visitors from another world. And nobody else knew enough about uh, the book to say, no, that's not what he's talking about. But I later in life, of course, did uh, try to study and learn what this book is talking about. These wheels and these creatures all function together as one. And it speaks about a space above them called the firmament. And it speaks about the the throne that is up, uh, up there above these creatures. And this will become more clear as we go through. Skipping over to chapter 8, the year is 592, and we're getting closer to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. And the Bible says that one of the cherubs took Ezekiel by the hair and brought him over to the temple courtyard from Babylon over to Judah. Now that's hundreds of miles. Of course, he's having a vision here, but it's an interesting way that uh, it, the, the, uh, this uh, Cherub gets Ezekiel's attention. Reminded me of, you know, I remember my grandmother talking about, you know, I'm going to snatch you bald. Uh, You remember hear that? (laughs) You know, if you get a hold of your hair, I'm going to pull hard enough, I may get your hair. Uh, Well, Ezekiel was grabbed by the hair in this vision and carried over to Jerusalem. And he sees the glory of God is still there. And it describes for him... In this chapter, a number of times where God says, I want you to see things, Ezekiel. We're going to go through the temple area and we're going to look and we're going to find things that you didn't know were going on. And the Bible says that there by the north gate, 
the altar gate was the image of jealousy. The image of jealousy. Now, we're not told what that is, but I believe it is an idol. I believe it is false worship of a false god. The Bible teaches us that God says, I am a jealous god. He did not want his people worshiping other false gods. And this made him jealous. That is, he yearned for his people to worship him. And so whatever this image is, this idol is, it is provoking God to jealousy because they're worshiping it. God says to Ezekiel, son of man, do you see what they're doing? Do you see? He wanted him to look and take note of that. And he goes on and tells him, you will see greater abominations than that. He takes him to a wall and says, through that hole in the wall where he is to dig, it is revealed that the elders of Israel were worshiping idols of all sorts of creatures that God has made, creeping things from the earth. And uh, uh, he says that they're doing this because they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken us. It's always been fascinating to me to realize whenever two people or two groups of people or even two nations are at odds with one another, they're having a conflict, a feud of some sort, that if you ask them, well, who started it? (laughs) They point at each other, don't they? They don't know who started it. So they assume that the other one started it and they've got the moral high ground. Lots of people do that. Well, that's what these people of Judah They point to God. Well, God doesn't see us anymore. He has left us. So we'll just worship the gods that are here. But the Bible teaches us way back in Deuteronomy that God had said, as long as you serve me, I will bless you. But if you turn away from me, I'll turn away from you. It was they who had turned away, not the Lord. A little later, we find in that chapter that by the door of the north gate, he was shown women who were weeping for Tamas another false god, in front of the temple itself, right out there in the very front and in the open, he was shown 25 men worshiping the sun. Their backs were to the temple, the house of God, and they were facing east to worship the rising sun. This was all going on in the area of the temple. And the people didn't know. This is what the leaders were doing. Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit such abominations as they commit here? God said. He told Ezekiel they filled the land with violence and they provoked me to anger with their idolatrous practices. So I will act in fury and my eye will not spare. I will have no pity. In chapter 9, the preparations for the vengeance of God begin to take place. And he calls for men to come forward out of the temple area. And six men answer God's call to come and exact justice on Jerusalem. One of the men is described for us. <clears throat> he is said to be wearing linen. And at his side is an equal. And he will be one with a special, uh, special duty. He will be called to bring mercy. On those who are righteous. He was asked by God to put a mark on the forehead of all those who mourn for the people of God. Because of this wickedness that's going on. All of those who are still on God's side. You put a mark on their head. No doubt with that inkwell that he had. The others of those six leaving the five were were told to give. uh, They were given the order to kill all the rest of the people. Kill them all. The old and the young men. The maidens and the little children. And the women. 
horrifies us to think about things like that. But as God said, I will have no pity on these who have turned their backs on me. Now, Ezekiel asked God, you know, uh, about the reason for this. And God said, now the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. It's very bad. And the land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of perversity. And that tour that he'd just gotten through the temple area should have convinced him of that. If this is what the leaders are doing, well, come to chapter 10, and we're again introduced to the throne of God in the firmament above those four living creatures, those cherubs. And God tells the man that was wearing the linen to take coals, burning coals from under the throne, from in there where the cherubs are and those wheels, to take them to use to throw on the city of Jerusalem to burn it up for its punishment. God's glory, it says, went up and paused over the temple threshold. As I've said, now these cherubs are the, those who carry the, the litter, if you will, the, 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 uh, uh, the coach, the throne of God. And the wheels are described there as a wheel within a wheel. I think the, the indication is, is they were like this, one wheel going this way and one wheel going this way, so that this contraption could roll forward, it could roll sideways without being turned one way or the other. So it's an interesting description of the throne. But down there in the midst, the coals of fire were to be taken and thrown on the city. Now, the sound of the wings of the cherubs is mentioned several times, and it is very impressive. It is loud, and it calls your attention to the power of these beings to be able to lift God in his glory. And it says that one of the cherubs took the coals and gave them to this other man. And then in chapter 11, you skip over to verse 22, and you'll see the last part of what I want us to think about. The Spirit brought Ezekiel to the east gate, where 25 wicked men were there. And God pronounces judgment on those men. But God promises to restore the faithful the faithful of Israel, they will be preserved. They will be spared of this judgment that is coming upon the city. And the Lord departs from Jerusalem and goes to the mountain that is on the east of Jerusalem. And we know that mountain. We're familiar with it. In the New Testament, it's mentioned prominently. It is there called the Mount of Olives. But that is where the throne of God is said to be. And there's an old Jewish tradition that says that that throne stayed there for three years while God was hoping they would repent, but they didn't. That's an old Jewish tradition. <clears throat> but the Bible says that Ezekiel was returned back in his vision to Babylon. To Babylon. The detail was that when this vision started, Ezekiel was meeting with some of the elders they were in captivity there with him. And apparently he went into this trance, this, saw these visions there in their midst. He witnessed all these things. They didn't. But when he came to again, he told them everything that he saw and that God had said. Now we go back for just a few minutes and think about these things that we've seen in these visions. Especially there in chapter 1. I'm, I'm interested in those, uh, those creatures and those wheels. Uh, it says there that those, uh, that those creatures, they're not aliens from some other world. Not as we think of that today. But they're heavenly beings. If you take is, uh, Exodus and you take Revelation, you'll find many similarities to what is described in these chapters that we've just quickly ran through. 
God is always described in the places where his throne is described. And there have been five people, I think, in the Bible that have been privileged to see the throne of God. Moses saw that when he was told by God to make the tabernacle according to the pattern that you saw in the mountain. Well, the tabernacle represents what the throne of God looks like in a loose sort of way. Others who were privileged to see this, uh, uh, this temple of, uh, of God, his, uh, his throne, were Isaiah in chapter 6. And here, uh, Ezekiel. And we read about Paul in Second uh, Corinthians 12 who went to the third heaven. He wasn't allowed to tell us, he said. And then John who writes in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And what he writes in those two chapters and what we see Moses doing in building the tabernacle in Exodus are very similar in so many ways to the details given here in the beginning of the book of Ezekiel. These creatures are odd indeed. They have four faces, each one of them, you know. We might have heard of somebody who sometime had two faces, uh, but that wasn't a compliment. <laughs> but these creatures have four faces, and they are interesting. The face of a man was on the front. And the face of a lion was on the right. The face of an ox or a bull was on the left. And the face of an eagle was on the back. So that this creature, this cherub, could look in every direction at once. And so it could certainly move in every direction at once. The legs are said to be like calves' feet. They had wings, four of them. With two, they covered their bodies. And with two, they lifted up so that they could fly. They had hands under those wings that covered their body. The Bible says when they moved, they could move straight forward or to the side, either way, without turning the throne of God. They could go in any direction, which speaks a lot about the mobility of God and how he can get and be everywhere. In appearance, they were probably generally the shape of a man in that kind of a form. But the Bible describes their appearance as, as burning coals of fire and the color of burnished bronze. Their bodies were full of eyes. It's a little difficult sometimes to imagine all of this. But uh, when you looked at them, you could see the appearance of torches and lightning going back and forth among them. As I said, these are the cherubs, angelic beings that God has made to be around his throne. And it's always described as being four of them. Read about those other angelic beings that God made, the seraphs, the seraphim. That's what Isaiah describes in Isaiah chapter 6. But also you read about those wheels. Those are wheels, tires, uh, you know, wheels that convey something. Not alien spaceships flying here from some other world. But there was one on each corner here, one beside each cherub. And all of these wheels were alike. The Bible says they were the color of beryl, which usually is green. And on closer inspection, you see that there's a wheel in the wheel so that it could roll forward and backward and side to side. That, to me, is the best way to understand that, although there's lots of uh, interpretations to that idea. But they could move so easily. The rims of the wheels were also full of eyes. And the wheels went and stopped as the creatures did. So this is the conveyance, the chariot, if you will. Of the throne of God. It describes the firmament or the space above the cherubs and the wheels. And this is the color of sapphire. It's beautiful blue. As we think when we look up at the sky in the daytime and see that beautiful blue. Blue is always a, a royal color. 
It's the color there of the throne of God. And the Bible says that that space contained the likeness of a throne, God's throne, where the glory of God resided. And that throne is a very mobile thing. It can go where God wants it. You know, the children of Israel, as did most of the nations back in those days, times of ignorance, the Bible speaks of it, they thought of gods as being stationary. Oh, you Egyptians, you have your gods down there. The Babylonians, they have their gods over there. The Syrians, they have their gods. The Canaanites had their gods. Well, the Jews realized we've got our God. There's a temple over there. That's where we worship him. But it's important for us to know that God was never intending to be identified as a located God. When Solomon built that first temple in 1 Kings 8, he described in his prayer, Oh, Lord, you cannot dwell in temples made with hands. And Paul preached that to the people in Athens in Acts 17. But we've come to think many times that God is a God of a certain place. You know, we are the one nation under God, so we have God over here, you know. Uh, God at the church building, you know, God someplace. No, we shouldn't think of that. God is the God of everywhere at the same time. There's a lot of things that we can learn from these uh, images that are depicted for us, you know. These creatures, these angelic beings that God has made, they, are, uh, they have these four creatures on their faces, four different things. And if you think about those four beings, those four creatures, they are the great creatures. Man, of course, is the greatest of all of God's creatures. The eagle is the greatest of the birds. The ox, the bull, is the greatest of the domesticated animals. The lion. Greatest of the wild animals. And so all of these described together in this one being represent the greatness of God. And their mobility represents the omnipresence of God. That he can go anywhere and be everywhere to accomplish his will. Being covered with eyes, we understand the omniscience of God. That he knows what's happening in his world. Being mighty by the the strength of their wings when they fly and the sound that they make, we understand the power, the omnipotence of God. And their appearance, that of the fire and the burnished bronze, perhaps could represent the purity of God as fire does to many things, purifies them. The occupant on that throne is not really described for us, just a being that is of fire. The same thing is true everywhere we look in the Bible. God's image, his, uh, his appearance is not spelled out for us as we would like, I know. The Bible says, though, that no man has seen God at any time. We've been able to see man in various times, a likeness of God. Abraham saw a, a man with two other men that were angels come to his tent. Moses was drawn to a burning bush. And as that tabernacle was built, God was represented by the smoke That filled that. And so Noah just heard the voice of God. He has appeared in a number of different ways to man. But his true image, his true likeness is never revealed to us. John in Revelation 4 just says, he who was on the throne. That's the way he's described. He has the appearance of fire. And on this occasion, he's coming in judgment and in justice. But Ezekiel says... In the middle of describing all of this, at near the end of the first chapter, he says, This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. 
Not aliens coming in spaceships. If we had just read the end of that verse, I could have quieted that boy, you know. He's talking about God. And how do you describe God? Man's language always fails when we try to describe the undescribable. And that's really what God is, isn't he? But Ezekiel's response is the right one. He falls flat on his face. Worship and humility before the true and living God. And he's trying to describe, as I said, what can't be said, what can't be spoken. God's purpose is to bring vengeance for the wickedness of his people. But as is always described, there is a, a, a beam of mercy. The righteous are to be spared. Now the Lord, it says, describing there, departs from Jerusalem and goes to the Mount of Olivet. And there he says, he speaks of God finally ending his relationship with the wicked Jews that lived in that place. And will end his protection of the city, the city that he said earlier, the place I will put my name. And the place where Solomon has built a house to his name. God has had a relationship there where he has been worshipped. But that is coming to an end. God's glory was never meant to be contained by a house that man built. God was forsaking his house, yes, and the city. But he was not forsaking his earth or mankind. God has a plan for man in the future, a plan of salvation. A plan today that involves his church to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. A wonderful plan. God has not given up on us. God was through, though, at that time with those people of talking through his prophets. And was now about to mete out the justice that their wickedness had brought upon themselves. It's a strange God that we worship when we think about it. But isn't it also wonderful That his mercy endures so long. How long had he put up with these people? The Bible says as soon as they came out of bondage from Egypt. They began to complain. There was nothing to eat. Nothing to drink. Oh look at this ocean. The Egyptians are behind us over and over. Until finally God had to say. I've had it up to here. He said ten times you have provoked me. But that's the way I kind of like to think of it. The last straw. At one time he even said to Moses, I'm going to destroy the whole people and start over with you. Moses pleaded and prayed to God not to do that. And so God's mercy endures to the end. It endures so long. God wants to bring salvation to us. You know, the protection of the righteous that are prophesied here did not really prevent them from dying. It prevented them from dying in the time of punishment, but they're going to die later in their time. I don't know if you've thought about that. They certainly would die later. But this reveals to us a very important lesson, a lesson that we need to know today. And that is this. All suffering is not punishment. The wicked people were about to be punished. And in the process of that, a lot of the righteous would have to suffer through. Just because we're suffering, just because we don't feel good, just because things aren't going right in our lives, does not mean God is punishing us. Not all suffering is punishment. The faithful were not being punished 
though at that time they did suffer. And today, sometimes people think, because something is amiss in my life, I wonder what I did. I wonder. I had a boy, young boy tell me many years ago, when I was still at Eastside, I was teaching a class, and he asked this question. He said, I had a flat tire on my way home from work today. What did I do that caused God to give me a flat? <laughs> I had to tell him what Freud used to say. You know, sometimes a flat is just a flat. Does not mean you're being punished. We need to know that to live our lives today. Ah, Ezekiel is given the commission by God to tell the Jews that the destruction that they're about to experience back in their homeland, he's talking to the captives, but the, the punishment upon the, the people that remain, and maybe they were relatives, maybe they were friends, but that it is just. What God is doing is just. It is in keeping with his holiness. Ezekiel asked him, well, will you destroy all the residue of Israel? No. The Bible had prophesied a number of times we can read that God has always promised that there would be a righteous remnant. There would be some that would be left that would be faithful to him, true to the end, and with them he will always work. With them he will always work. It may be that everybody else goes the wrong way today. I want to be, even if I'm the last one, like the sore thumb, you know, I want to stand out and, and be faithful to God. We have to be that committed, that determined. The iniquity of God's people, remember chapter 8, was so bad that it astonishes us. They were doing that? Was it really that bad? Causes us to wonder, could it ever be that bad today? God's people, that's who that was. We're old and wise. If we've been in positions of leadership in the Lord's church, we probably are aware of things that other people in the church might not be. But sometimes there is wickedness in people's lives that others don't know about. I'm not saying it's rampant. I'm not saying it's, it's here or there. But this is how bad it was among God's people in God's house. We need to be concerned that we are doing things as the Bible teaches us. That we're following God's will in our life. In our personal life and in the church functions. So that we're not like this. It can happen. The Bible warns us many times about those who might go out from us because they are not of us. The glory of God left the temple, the Bible tells us, and it left the city. It is not said that God went all the way in his throne over to Babylon. But we know that God is everywhere and that he certainly could be reached even in Babylon, by the captives that were there, they could pray to God, even though they weren't in their homeland where their house of God was. Remember, God is not a located God. He's not a place. You don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to pray to God. Nehemiah prayed in Persia for the well-being of the Jews back in Judea. We could pray to God anywhere. Oh, I've been told, maybe you've heard it, they took prayer out of school. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. I go into the high school in Hugo many times to uh, work with a club that's there, and I pray when I'm in there. I tell the kids, you can pray. Uh, maybe they won't let you pray out loud, but God will hear you. 
God didn't take prayer, or no, uh, people didn't take prayer out of anywhere. As long as I want to pray, I can pray to God. God needs all of us to know that he is the God of every nation, the God of every place, the God of every person. I know there's some people in the world that say, no, I'm a Muslim, I have my God, or I'm a, a, a Buddhist, I have my God. No, there is one God for all mankind, and it's to him that we must answer. The book of Ezekiel and these visions that we've looked at shows God because of sin, might choose to leave and remove his protection so that that punishment can take place. But God is still with his people, still with those who are interested and willing to serve and follow him. And I encourage each of us to be those people. Be the people that are willing to follow God, no matter what may be happening around us in this world. The news isn't always good, but with God it can be. Thank you very much.